All right. First off, I want to go ahead and thank everybody for joining us today on From the Head of the Bed podcast. This is Cassie Paget here in Louisville, Kentucky at Coast Area's Children Medical Center. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kushner. First of all, Dr. Kushner, um, I guess, could you just give us a little bit about yourself? You're one of the attendings here at Coast Area's Children's Medical Center. Sure. I've been an anesthesiologist here at Coast Area for two years. I did my residency here in Louisville. So I was here for four years, then did a fellowship up at Rainbow in Cleveland and moved back down here to join the group. Glad to have you here on the podcast with us today. Thanks for the invite. Today, you're going to be talking about sickle cell anemia. This is actually applicable not only to children, but also in the adult world. So I think it'd be a good topic to review just briefly. And uh, Dr. Kushner's got some good information here for us. All right. Thanks for having me. So sickle cell disease, uh, it's going to affect kids and adults. And as patients are getting older, you're going to see more and more uh, problems related to sickle cell disease. So here we'll start off uh, with, a, with a question for you. A seven-year-old is uh, presenting for a tonsil and adenoidectomy for obstructive sleep apnea. They have a history of sickle cell disease. They've had a few crises, but none in the past few months. The hemoglobin on hydroxyurea is 10. So we're going to do uh, all, all of these are correct in the management of this patient, except A, he should have a hematology consult preoperatively. B, he does not require a transfusion since his hemoglobin is 10. C, a hemoglobin electrophoresis should be obtained. Or D, surgery should not be done in an ambulatory center. So the ones that are correct are he should have a hematology consult. You should obtain an electrophoresis. And surgery should not be done in an ambulatory center in this child. The answer that was wrong there was B. It says he does not require a transfusion since his hemoglobin was 10. And you'll, you'll see why that's the case here in a minute. Uh, sickle cell disease is uh, not just simple erythrocyte deformation in the cells that look like sickles. It involves hemolysis, anemia, and the important stuff of microvascular occlusion, and then recurrent ischemic injury in all organ systems. And I think it's important to remember it's in all organ systems. Uh, if you just think of it as a blood problem, you're missing what's actually happening. In the United States, 8% of the African-American population carries one of the recessive genes that result in sickle cell trait. One in 625 African-Americans is homozygous for the mutant uh, alleles that result in sickle cell anemia, which are the HBSS or SCA, sickle cell anemia. It's the leading cause of morbidity and mortality among African-Americans. The expression of this sickle cell disease phenotype is not limited to patients with, with sickle cell anemia. If they have other blood disorders, like one of the thalassemias, for example, then they can show symptoms of sickle cell anemia if they have another trait that is sickle. Acute complications of sickle cell disease that are relevant to pediatric anesthesia are acute splenic sequestration. And that usually occurs in children between the ages of five months and two years. And it may occur as late as the teenage years in patients with sickle thalassemia. This results from the pooling of large quantities of blood in the spleen and leads to shock with profound anemia. An aplastic crisis is another complication that results when the normal brisk reticulocytosis that's associated with sickle cell disease is suppressed, so they're not forming red blood cells quickly enough. And this happens when they have a viral infection with parvovirus B19. They can also have a hemolytic crisis in patients that are exposed to an abrupt increase in hemolytic stress, such as infection or medication. Many patients with hemolytic crisis are also deficient in the enzyme glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. 
The treatments of these crises uh, involve intravascular volume expansion, transfusion of red blood cells, treatment of the infection, and then stopping uh, the offending medications that are causing the crisis. Sepsis and septic shock are serious acute complications that can occur, and they generally experience autoinfarction of the spleen in early childhood, and they're rendered susceptible to encapsulated organism infections. In any patient, but especially in these patients, aseptic techniques and wound infection prophylaxis are critical. Vaso-occlusive crisis are episodes of painful ischemia and tissue infarction that result from small vessel occlusion by sickle cells. The most common types of these vaso-occlusive crises are dactylitis, which is hand and foot crisis in infancy, painful crises in children and adolescents, preprism in males, stroke, and acute chest syndrome are the most serious forms of the vaso-occlusive crisis. Stroke may occur in the perioperative period. Stroke in children with sickle cell disease are most commonly ischemic, but one-third of strokes in adult patients with sickle cell are actually hemorrhagic. Interestingly, many more patients with sickle cell disease suffer silent ischemic infarcts that are evident only on neuroimaging and their presence will predict future ischemic neurologic injury. 20%, so one in five of asymptomatic adolescents have imaging that shows cerebral infarction, silent infarction. Acute chest syndrome occurs in the setting of pulmonary infection or painful crisis. The symptoms of pneumonia, fever, pleuritic chest pain, cough, dyspnea, hypoxemia, and infiltrates on the chest x-ray. And they may be difficult to distinguish from acute chest syndrome. Respiratory failure may develop quickly in patients with acute chest syndrome are treated with uh, hydration, oxygen, and antibiotics, simple transfusion, and in severe cases, exchange transfusion. Case reports have described treatment of this acute chest syndrome with nitric oxide and ECMO. So going on to the chronic complications relevant to pediatric anesthesia, they can apply pretty much to all organ systems, decreased growth and maturation, increased nutritional requirements, retinopathy, stroke, cognitive dysfunction, cardiac dysfunction, elevated pulmonary vascular resistance, chronic lung injury, diminished renal tubular function, icterus, bone and joint destruction, leg ulceration, splenic infarction with consequent susceptibility to infections. And of particular importance to the perioperative management is appreciating the chronic changes that occur in the, in the cardiovascular, respiratory, and renal systems. The elevated pulmonary vascular resistance in childhood is a predictor of premature death in kids. When you're pre-oping a patient, you should know that most patients now are identified by newborn electrophoresis, if they have this or not. Dehydration may predispose to your vaso-occlusive crisis and acute chest syndromes. Patients with sickle cell disease should be well hydrated before surgeries. There hasn't been any real support in randomized control trials of IV hydration at one and a half times maintenance overnight, so it's probably best to defer to the hematology specialists that are taking care of these patients before they have elective surgery. The most debated topic over perioperative management of patients with sickle cell disease concerns the role of prophylactic pre-op blood transfusion. There's different strategies for blood transfusion. One is a simple transfusion. And that is when the blood is transfused and your goal is to get a hemoglobin of 10 with no regard to the final percentage of HBS. Aggressive transfusions are repetitive simple transfusions or acute exchange transfusions with the goal of hemoglobin being 10 and the HBS percentage being less than 30. 
The rationale for pre-op transfusion in both cases is increasing the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. And in the case of aggressive transfusion, decreasing the percentage of HBS in the circulation to prevent sickling. Preoperative prophylactic infusion risk, you can acquire bloodborne infection, hemolytic transfusion reactions, febrile reactions, trolley transfusion associated acute lung injury, iron overload, immunosuppression, and alloimmunization to the foreign RBC antigens, which may result in difficulty cross-matching later. Typically, patients with sickle cell disease who are undergoing associated procedures with moderate and increased risk, like laparotomy, thoracotomy, and tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, are managed with simple transfusion to correct the anemia. High-risk patients, such as those with stroke and recurrent acute chest syndrome, and patients that are undergoing very high-risk procedures like cardiovascular and cerebrovascular surgery, may require an aggressive exchange transfusion approach to decrease their HBS percentage. Intraop management, if a patient has sickle cell trait only, there's usually no issues or risk of sickling unless the SATs are under 40%, and it's usually a good idea to keep patients sat above 40% all the time. In sickle cell disease, hydroxyurea is a medication which is going to stimulate HBF, the fetal hemoglobin production, and an increase in HBF from 5 to 15% decreases the incidence of acute chest syndrome by half in all age groups. And if you remember, the patient in the question at the beginning was on hydroxyurea. Tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, laparotomy, and thoracotomy are all higher-risk surgeries, and they may need a transfusion to hemoglobin greater than 10. Oxygenation, hydration, and normothermia are critical, and post-op pain control and oxygen monitoring are important in these patients. I hope that's a nice overview of sickle cell disease. All right, that's good information. Um, one question I would like to ask for a student or a new CRNA coming out into practice, if you know that you're going to have a sickle cell patient coming up, you see it on the board, that's going to be your next case, or maybe even your plan for the next day, what are some of the questions that immediately run through your head, and what do you think you're going to do differently? I'm definitely going to want to look to see if they've seen their hematologist recently and see what their most recent labs are. Make sure the room is warm. Make sure the patient is hydrated. And I don't make the decision as an anesthesiologist about which type of transfusion to give a patient because most of the time there is time to plan this out. So I would definitely defer to the experts in regards to what the most recent evidence is for giving a transfusion versus not because nothing is without risk. But you want to do what's safest for the patient. So look at the consultant's note and see where they are, where they've been, what they recommend for this type of surgery. If it's an emergency, obviously you're going to have to think more on your feet get the case started, get blood available, and talk to the specialist as soon as you can, but provide oxygenation, ventilation, and hydration to those patients. All right. That's good information. Now, uh, one more quick question about that. As far as, I know we talked more about the intraoperative period. What would you say that we would do anything any differently, say if it's just for something for endo or a sedation case or something like that? Is there anything that we'd do different or would we treat it almost like a normal case? When there's not a lot of surgical stress involved and you're not expecting blood loss, you still want to know what their hemoglobin is because that's obviously helped carry oxygen to the tissues. And you want to make sure, especially in a case where you, you don't have a protected airway, that you are managing that airway and making sure you put the oral airway in, put the LMA in, or intubate the patient if you have to manage that airway because you don't want their saturation to drop and precipitate a crisis. All right. So there you have it, folks. Keep them hydrated. Keep them warm. Minimize stress. All good points brought out to us today by Dr. Kushner. Thank you for his time and uh, joining us here today. Hopefully we'll be back again sometime to speak with him on another topic. Um, thanks, Dr. Kushner. Thank you.